Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I'm joined again by Professor Paul Cantor, our eminent Shakespearean, as I never tire of calling you since I've just uh, recently bought your new book on Shakespeare and Rome. But today we are talking about Frankenstein, the novel and the number of the movie adaptations in Hollywood since the 30s. First of all, thank you for joining me and tell me how you came to decide to write on Frankenstein and to look through all these different works of art. Well, Frankenstein has become an incredibly important work, being almost a myth of the modern world. There are a few examples of a story created more or less from scratch by a human being that uh, has lasted so long and has been adapted in so many different media. I should say that as an English professor, I came to it out of my study of English romanticism. Mary Shelley was the wife of Percy Shelley, the great romantic poet, and I actually studied the novel as a romantic myth. So I did notice that uh, Mary Shelley develops a critique of her husband's romantic idealism uh, in Frankenstein, and so that's when I first wrote about Frankenstein. Back in 1984, the book was published. It's called uh, Creature and Creator. I almost took the title from Frankenstein. The basic point about the original story that Mary Shelley wrote is that it is about, uh, on a simple level, creating a human being. But Mary Shelley related that to the hopes that arose out of the French Revolution to create a new man. It's actually the same thing that you can observe in the Russian Revolution over a century later. That is, Mary Shelley was very much confronted with the romantic idea that a new era was dawning, that with the overthrow of the old regime, human nature could be recreated from the bottom up. That was a great hope. Was reflect- the French Revolution went crazy. They redid the calendar with 1789 becoming day one. They renamed the months. They renamed Notre Dame, the Temple of Reason. And her book really is a critique of that idea. Frankenstein uh, is very much an idealist, and he thinks he's going to improve the human condition and conquer death, and instead he creates a monster. And that's the great power of the story, its initial form. It had a real resonance uh, with uh, contemporary currents of idealistic philosophy. Uh, She very much, I think, had Rousseau in mind. She was reading Rousseau the summer in 1816 when she wrote the book. Uh, and it uh, shows that uh, human beings can't remake themselves from the ground up. It's actually a rather conservative book, uh, and even more so in the second edition of 1831. Uh, So uh, that's how I got interested in it. Now, I should confess that I've loved the Frankenstein movies since I was a kid. I just loved horror movies, and they were shown on Channel 9, I believe, in New York. Uh, uh, and so I used to have to get permission from my parents to stay up late just so I could see Frankenstein. And that's what they showed then. These films were evidently rather cheap to show, and so they loaded up television in the early days. Uh, and 
I'm pretty sure, yeah, I'm pretty sure. I, I saw the films before I read the book. And, of course, it's a real discovery when you find out how much more serious the book is uh, than the films and how many things that are in the films are not in the book and how many things there are in the book that are not in the films. Uh, and eventually my interest converged as I developed uh, my interest in popular culture as an academic subject. All these things uh, came together. And I would say as a whole, the most interesting aspect about Frankenstein is it just is a magnificent test case of the interaction of so-called high culture or elite culture with popular culture. Uh, I can't think of any example where uh, a book, um, which we now take very seriously, it is, for example, one of the most frequently assigned books on college campuses. Uh, we regard this as really a serious work of literature, and yet it has had an amazing afterlife in popular culture. Uh, and uh, and there's been, uh, as I see it, a very interesting interaction. Uh, in fact, Frankenstein was popular culture in its day. Uh, it was published as an ordinary novel. Uh, now, today we think of the novel as serious literature. Uh, in 1818, when the book came out, uh, uh, it was just uh, a popular book. Now, it wasn't enormously popular. The first edition, first print run was only 500 copies, but uh, it was published uh, with the ordinary reading public uh, targeted. It was published in the standard three-volume novel form. And again, it's hard for us to believe, but in the early 19th century, novels were really looked down upon. They were not thought of as literature uh, no one would have dreamed that this book would be taught uh, at universities at the time it was published. In fact, it's very amusing to go back to that period. And there are lots of books coming out attacking the novel as a form. Uh, in fact, the no uh, say around 1830, novels were being discussed the way film and television were initially discussed uh, in the 20th century. That is, people were saying uh, it's not a good, uh, it's terrible that our children are reading novels. That looks so funny to us now because we're always trying to encourage uh, young people to read novels now. Don't watch television, read novels. Well, <laughs> in, say, 1830, essays were coming out don't read novels, work on the farm. Uh, uh, and in fact, and it, I thought at first that was just a content issue, that people would complain about uh, uh, the fact that novels dealt with uh, sexual relations and they were immoral. Uh, but in fact, uh, uh, the very medium was attacked, and, and specifically the medium of the uh, serialized novel. Novels were published, uh, not Frankenstein, but many novels at the time, including Dickens' novels, uh, were published periodically. They'd come out in installments, let's say every two weeks or so. And uh, this is a very interesting sermon uh, by Thomas Arnold. Uh, this is Matthew Arnold, father of the great poet Matthew Arnold. Uh, and Thomas Arnold uh, was the headmaster at rugby school. So a very famous educator. And he gave a sermon about how uh, uh, debilitating it was for students 
to be waiting around anxiously for the newest installment of a novel, you know, the way you'd uh, treat a sequel to a movie or a, or a soap opera. And it, it didn't even matter what was in the novel. He thought it was uh, uh, bad for children uh, to be exposed to the third eyes novel. So again, it's very strange. We we think Frankenstein went straight from Mary Shelley's pen to Oxford University. Uh, I I first started uh, teaching Frankenstein in the 1970s uh, at a university, and it was actually frowned upon. Some of my colleagues said, "Why are you teaching Frankenstein?" Uh, uh, now today, it's it's taught very widely, in part because it's been uh, taken up by feminists, and it's important because it was written by Mary Shelley, uh, a woman, and indeed the daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft, uh, probably the first great feminist thinker uh, in English. Uh, but at the time, uh, this was just considered a cheap form of entertainment, uh, and what's particularly interesting is that it was taken up on the stage within five years. Uh, uh, novel came out in 1818. I keep saying that, by the way, because this is the 200th anniversary of the publication of Frankenstein, and that's why yes, it is. Uh, lots of people are celebrating it. There's an exhibition at the Morgan Library in New York, a wonderful one called It's Alive, Frankenstein at 200. Uh, but in, in any case, uh, the uh, it came out in 1818. By 1823, it was on the London stage in a play called Presumption or the Fate of Frankenstein uh, by a man I think called Richard Brinsley Peake. Uh, and uh, it was an immediate hint uh, on the stage. Uh, and then there was just an incredible series of plays, uh, 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 Frankenstein plays both in England and France. It really caught on very quickly in popular culture uh, and changed almost immediately. It's actually funny to go over this uh, stream of plays. Uh, it ends around 1897 with a play called Frankenstein or the Vampire's Victim. And so already in the 19th century, they got the great idea, let's bring together two of our favorite monsters, just the way uh, in the movies in the 20th century they did Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. And they were already Frankenstein meets uh, the Vampire. And, and by the way, uh, you know, Frankenstein arose uh, as a novel in a kind of ghost story contest in the Byron Shelley circle, uh, as Mary explains in the introduction to the 1831 edition. They were sitting around on the uh, uh, nasty Swiss nights. Uh, by the way, again, there's so many strange aspects of this. In 1815, a volcano exploded in Indonesia and led to terrible winters in 1816. It's often called the, uh, the, the year without a summer. It snowed in North Carolina in July in 1816 because of all this volcanic ash still up in the uh, atmosphere. Uh, and so the, the Shelleys and Byron couldn't go out much, and so they told these ghost stories, and they got the idea that each would write a ghost story. Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, and uh, Byron and Percy Shelley essentially came up with nothing. But Byron's personal physician, a man named John Polidori, uh, who was part of the group, wrote a story called The Vampire. 
and it's the first literary treatment of a vampire. And it got a lot of traction because people thought Byron had written it, and he was the most famous author in Europe uh, at that time. Uh, and you can, you can trace Bram Stoker's Dracula all the way back to Polidori's The Vampire. So in a weird way, the two greatest horror figures of the 20th century uh, were born the summer of 1816 uh, uh, in uh, in around Geneva, Switzerland, as a result of a volcanic explosion. You couldn't make this stuff up. Uh, and there have been several movies, uh, 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 Ken Russell's Gothic is about this subject, and I gather uh, some movie just came out about Mary Shelley. I, I missed it. There are at least three or four movies that deal with the genesis uh, of, of Frankenstein. So you get this interesting history in the 19th century uh, as the story is developed on stage. For one thing, uh, it became a, ba- a, a big uh, encourager of special effects. Uh, the English theaters, uh, surprisingly, uh, were uh, developed in terms of what we would in fact call special effects. Uh, they, uh, pl- the theaters were rather large. They played to sometimes as many as 5,000 people. Uh, often people were far removed from the stage. And what they wanted to see was explosions. Uh, uh, that's why to this day English theaters have what's called a fire curtain that they have to display uh, uh, every night and so Frankenstein in the original production had an avalanche and then they upped it uh, uh, portraying uh, the laboratory more elaborately and then they had eventually they had a Frankenstein and the creature die at sea with the sinking of a boat in a storm. Uh, So a lot of the resources of 19th century theater were developed in order to stage uh, stage Frankenstein. Uh, The other thing that that actually this guy uh, Peek invented was Fritz, Uh, the the demented hunchback. Igor. Yeah, or he Fritz, and then Fritz became Igor. Uh, exactly. But it is interesting that this great character, actually played by Bela Lugosi in uh, *Son of Frankenstein* and *Ghost of Frankenstein*, that character was originally introduced by the play. Uh, he is not in the novel. That often people are often disappointed to see the novel because there's no Fritz or Igor. But, but. Uh, uh, Peek evidently wanted some comic relief, so he introduced this servant, and then that got uh, uh, f- uh, further developed in the movies. It's Fritz, played by Dwight Fry in the original Frankenstein, and then w- once Lugosi got his hands on it, he uh, it's really his greatest contribution. He played the monster in one film, but really he was be- Lugosi was best at playing Igor, and that, of course, leads to Marty Feldman in Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein and that great parody. So it, um, what I'm getting at here is we, we see how culture really operates that that this is a story that gets picked up it's one and 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 is transformed uh, uh through each medium each play makes a contribution to it i will uh, blasphemously compare this to greek tragedy uh and it's one reason why i refer to the frankenstein story as a myth that is we have this 
fundamental story uh, which Mary Shelley did invent. There are some precursors, but really there's nothing quite like the idea of a human being making uh, uh, another human being out of parts from dead bodies. But once that gets out there, uh, it moves into... uh, uh, it actually comes out of popular culture. It moves into popular culture. Uh, we get a theatrical tradition, then a cinematic tradition. It's really quite striking the number of changes that uh, are developed uh, on these central motifs. Uh, and you actually you can you study it. Uh, it's amazing how many steps there are, and even so within the, the movies. Now, again, I think the original novel is the most serious and the most philosophical of all these uh, works, but but the later versions do add things to the stories uh, and and make them more interesting. Yeah, that's true. It's important to see just how strange and at the same time ubiquitous our popular culture is. We have come up with our own modern mythologies that we never compare to the mythologies we learn about in the classics because they're classics and there are of course certain differences because with us we know where everything comes from there's a name on the page there's an author and there's a kind of completedness to our own mythology somebody had to come up with this whereas to compare with tragedy the definitive versions of the stories of the great tragic families come at the end Yes. You never know who came up with this stuff. You yeah. just know the perfect version of it. And that confuses us as to the relationship between the two. But to look just as you mentioned, both the vampire and Frankenstein's monster come out of the same event. And they are the monsters of the 19th and 20th centuries precisely because they reflect our strange awareness of our historical situation. The vampire, of course, harkens back to aristocracy and to the regimes of inequality to the darkness of prehistorical, that is, pre-modern times, and Frankenstein is forward-looking in the time when you create a new aristocracy of scientists who wield powers as unimaginable and scary as the powers, of course, of the previous rulers of mankind, so to speak. That is so right. Uh, That is, the vampire myth reflects fear of the past, the Frankenstein myth reflects fear of the future. It's no accident that it is Count Dracula. The uh, the vampire is an image of the predatory old regime. The vampire lives off the blood of the young. Uh, and that's what people in the 19th century, in the revolutionary spirit, thought was the truth about aristocracy, that it was old, decayed, decadent. Uh, you needed to put a stake through its heart. But Frankenstein is the fear, uh, the novel Frankenstein is the fear of the future, that these new scientists will come up with something which promises uh, the benefit of humanity, but in fact will become a destructive force. Let me back up to Greek mythology, though, for a bit, because it's something that I always have to fight my students over. They always want to know what is the Oedipus myth or what is the Prometheus myth. They're used to Sunday school and Christian catechism, and they think there was a defined version of each myth, as if there had been a Greek Bible. Now, Homer was as close uh, as we come to a Bible among the Greeks, uh, but in the references to Oedipus, 
in Homer, Jocasta is not the mother wife of Oedipus. The woman has another name. Uh, uh, and in fact, uh, we can't ever find the definitive version of a Greek myth because they, uh, they, the myths kept changing as authors came to them. And quite frankly, uh, it's useful to use an analogy with our modern world. Uh, the Oedipus myth was created by Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides. They each told uh, versions of the the, the story. Uh, uh, and we, we now think of Sophocles' Oedipus as definitive, but in Aeschylus's uh, version of the Oedipus, we don't have his play, uh, but we have accounts of it, and in there Oedipus did not search out the murderer. He just learned of the fact uh, that he'd murdered his father. And so, uh, actually, in some ways, Greek mythology was closer to what I'll call modern mythology, and that if we really look at it, it was created by people. Uh, created by the poets. That's why, in fact, the poets had so important a role uh, in the culture of the ancient Greeks. It's why we should understand that writers like Mary Shelley and then filmmakers like James Whale and the other people who have done Frankenstein movies, they are uh, the creators of our modern mythology. Again, it seems to me that these things are closer uh each other than than we think. Uh, the Greek myths were not simply inherited. They were actually developed over time, and we can see it happening. The Prometheus myth probably was largely formed by Hesiod, we know, and then Aeschylus, and even Plato. Uh, his version of the Prometheus myth has been very influential. So, you know, again, it was the great trick of the Greek poets uh, to make it seem that they were uh, 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 inheriting these myths when, in fact, they were creating them. And that's what I find fascinating uh, about Frankenstein. I mean, if you want to see a modern myth and a story that has had the resonance of the Greek myths, it really is true so that we now have words like Frankenfood. Uh, I mean, it, it, the Frankenstein stories has, have given us uh, concepts uh, through which we can view and understand our world. And that's what a myth does. And it's really powerful when it's embodied in a story. You can talk all you want about the dangers of cloning or genetic engineering. It's only when you invoke Frankenstein that people begin to listen. Yeah, kind of focuses the mind, doesn't it? Yes, and that's what a great myth does. It's amazing that Mary Shelley came up with this. Uh, yes, it is, and it's in a way it's not possible to that that such poets ever get credit precisely because of what they're dealing with. Now, at some level, this sort of future fear, Frankenstein past fear, Dracula is like, uh, say, Stendhal's Red and Black. There's the, the 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 new democratic order. There's the old aristocratic order, and each has its innumerable sins and failures, different though they are, and opposed to each other. It's just done at the popular level, as it were. But the but there is a new thing or a big difference, which is that uh, the Greek poets didn't have to deal with science. As, um, as an enemy authority, as a rival for knowledge. The, even the fact that 
Mary Shelley's book has to end up in academia to be thought serious shows what power our scientists and higher education or the pursuit of knowledge done institutionally has over our societies. And that's precisely why people, even in colleges, don't take this seriously enough, so to speak, because they can never recur to what we should call the authority of the people. There are good reasons why people have loved to be afraid of this for 200 years, and it has everything to do with a basic awareness of where we stand in our society. To compare this to tragedy, you'd say that horror changes one specific thing in our political situation. It's Now you have powers over human nature. Yes, the conquest of nature is all good and fine. We all want to get rid of the everything from disease to catastrophes. Nobody wants to die in a tsunami. But what happens when conquest of nature through scientific power turns into conquest of human nature? Yes, that's then you a, get horror. Yeah, that's exactly what Mary Shelley is dealing with. And here's very interesting to understand that her husband, Percy Shelley, and Lord Byron were very interested in modern science. This is something most people don't realize. Uh, they think of the romantic poets as simply opposed to science. William Blake speaks of satanic mills, and they think he's referring to the Industrial Revolution, which in fact he was not. Uh, but we have so many images of the romantic poets uh, celebrating uh, pastoral nature, uh, uh, I wandered among the daffodils, and so on. In fact, they were all intrigued with modern science, and especially electricity. It's hard for us to recover how wondrous electricity seemed around 1800. You know, Ben Franklin uh, had just discovered it in a way. And, you know, electricity is pretty marvelous to this day. Uh, although we tend to take it for granted. Uh, but uh, when people just began to realize its potential, uh, they thought its potential was unlimited. So that, for example, one of the things that Mary Shelley was reacting to was early experiments with batteries uh, to revive dead animals and even uh, dead human corpses uh, 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 Volta and Galvani uh, were inventing better and better uh, uh, batteries, and one of the first things people did was they'd attach a battery to a dead frog, and they found that an electric current could make the frog's legs move. Now, we understand that now, why that isn't bringing the frog back to life. It is just a kind of autonomic reaction to the electric current. But at the time, they really wondered if electricity wasn't the life force itself, the mysterious Elan Vital, uh, as it was known. Uh, and, and then there were people who attached batteries to corpses, and they could get people's eyes to blink, dead people's eyes to blink. Uh, and and uh, Mary Shelley uh, talks about this again in her introduction to the 1831 edition. And uh, uh, per Percy was fascinated by chemistry. Uh, he had what we would call a chemistry set in his rooms at Oxford and evidently nearly blew up his dorm. Uh, uh, <laughs> and and uh, uh, Alfred North Whitehead called Shelley a Newton among poets. 
uh, and actually thought that if Shelley had devoted himself to science, uh, he could have been a great scientist, which again sounds strange to us, but Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, the greatest German author of the period, was in fact a significant scientist. Uh, he discovered the intermaxillary bone in the human anatomy and had a theory of color and uh, wrote about uh, geology. And so, uh, again, we think of science and literature as antithetical, uh, two different cultures, according to C.P. Snow. But at the time, a lot of authors saw science as something really romantic, that it was uh, uh, creating new possibilities, uh, and especially this is, you know these experiments uh, possibly to revive uh, uh, human life. And Shelley was interested in them. Byron was interested in them. They were, for example, fascinated by dinosaurs. They the word dinosaur was not coined till the 1840s, but this is the period first decades of the 19th century, uh, that people were beginning to understand fossils and to see that these were uh, the remains, the fossilized remains of uh, what were then called antediluvian creatures, creatures that came before Noah's flood. But Shelley writes about them in Prometheus Unbound. Byron writes about them in his uh, play called Cain. Uh, so, uh, again, it's hard for us to understand, looking at contemporary poets, that these romantic poets were actually quite current, uh, pardon the pun, with all the new electric discover discoveries in electricity and with a lot of, <laughs> and with a lot of scientific uh, uh, theories. Uh, cosmology, as we understand it, was just developing the nebular hypothesis, the idea that the solar system grew out of the uh, condensation of clouds, uh, that's just coming along. So science actually seemed quite romantic at this time, and, and uh, Mary Shelley points out that uh, while they sat around the fire to warm themselves uh, during the winter of the summer of 1816, uh, they were discussing all sorts of new scientific uh, possibilities, and she was skeptical about it. It is funny there. Uh, uh, literary critics are always disputed. There are attempts now to claim that Percy Shelley actually wrote Frankenstein. It appears that he corrected a few passages. He noticed that Mary uh, had written Francis Bacon when she should have written Roger Bacon, uh, and he was nice enough to correct it. But uh, I, 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 speaking of Francis Bacon, I, it reminds me of the people who claim that Francis Bacon wrote Shakespeare's plays. Aside from all the other problems with that theory, uh, Shakespeare and Francis Bacon had antithetical views of the world. I won't go into that, but basically Bacon was a modern, and I think Shakespeare was an ancient. But in any case, it's ridiculous to claim Bacon wrote Shakespeare's plays when he had such a totally uh, different view from Shakespeare's. And I feel the same way, that Mary was criticizing Percy in Frankenstein, that he was too idealistic, that his hopes for science were too, were too great. Uh, uh, and indeed, it is funny, he did write the preface to the original 1818 Frankenstein was published anonymously. It was dedicated to Mary's father, William Godwin, a very famous political philosopher at the time. Uh, from that, some people did infer that Percy had written it because he was a kind of disciple of Godwin's. I believe a very few people detected that a woman had written the book. It's very interesting to see that in now in many ways 
it's clear because the original Frankenstein is so concerned with the issue of birth, and in a way, it's a whole book about parenting. Uh, but in any case, Percy did write a preface, and he says something like, uh, "This book should not prejudice us prejudice us against any scientific theory." By which I think he sensed Mary was criticizing him, and he didn't want that. Uh, it's only until thirty-one, uh, with that edition, that Mary revealed that that uh, she had written it. So it was very interesting uh, that indeed. Uh, when her her husband and Byron were celebrating uh, the imaginative possibilities of modern science, that it might create a new world and create a new human nature, Mary Shelley was deeply skeptical of that project. Uh, and it is interesting that uh, there's a great irony here in that Mary lived very much in the shadow of her husband and uh, and Lord Byron. Again, Byron was just hugely uh, uh, famous uh, during his lifetime. He even was famous for having said, I, I awoke one morning and found myself famous. Mary, in a sense, has had the last laugh. Uh, I love Byron, I love Shelley, and I read their works, but very few people read them uh, anymore. Uh, and many, many people still read uh, Mary's novel, and in terms of its afterlife, uh, it has had uh, as great an impact as, on culture as almost any single work. I'm not going to say it's the Bible, but in, in terms of its afterlife, it's really quite remarkable how it keeps going and keeps going. And it gave birth to all these films. And in as much as it has lived on its story, precisely as opposed to the fame of its author, it shows again how powerful, how important what we think of as culture is, and how hard to uh, to predict. You can see certain things, and the romantic moment is unique in modern times for this triple combination of political revolution and scientific revolution and the revolution in sensibilities and in poetry, therefore. You can look at the modernist poets of the early 20th century and their connection to political revolution. A bunch of them were communists or fascists. But they didn't have this third aspect of modernity down, that is to say, reflection on natural science and the powers of, of, of science to change our society and perhaps our nature. Whereas Mary Shelley lived in a moment where indeed all these things went together. And of course, the early romantics were uh, incredibly impressed with science and uh, not just the younger ones like Byron, but older ones like Coleridge and even Wordsworth. Yes. They, romanticism does eventually turn against the newness of power and even the newness of political revolution and has a certain preference for the medieval stage, for the past. But it's in its birth moments, you see this triple revolution in sensibility, in natural science and political science blooming. And the, the other thing that makes Mary Shelley's book so interesting is how it reveals a certain, as you said, it's a conservative book. It reveals a certain nostalgia that is embedded in um, new media, actually. It is precisely the fact that there are new powers scientifically and new modes of communication established 
that allows for a certain kind of social conservatism, we'd call it today. Fear about what is being lost, a direct apprehension of how risky change really is, and an imaginative projection of those risks and dangers all the way into myth. Yeah. And this obviously attracts people. Yeah, and also frightens them. And it's interesting here, uh, Mary Shelley referred to the novel itself, to the novel Frankenstein, as my hideous progeny. And her sense of having sent that go forth. And in a sense, the book is her monster, uh, and she fears its effect. And again, people looked down on the novel then. They didn't realize what a potent force was being unleashed on the world. And it ties in with the enormous technological leap that came in the early 19th century. First, that paper got cheap. Uh, and this was an indirect byproduct of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, paper had been very expensive up to the 18th century. I'm not even talking about vellum, but the kind of paper that they had to make uh, was expensive. And then they discovered rag content, uh, that the Industrial Revolution up in Manchester, uh, these great textile mills, were producing an enormous surplus of rags. And they discovered how to make paper out of that. And suddenly became, paper became cheap. Uh, uh, up until uh, 1800, books were very expensive. A book would cost the average person a month's salary. Uh, uh, by the end of the 19th century, books were cheap enough for ordinary people to buy them. And that was a result of rag paper and then the steam press. Uh, once the, the use of steam engines, uh, starting with the textile factories, was transferred to printing, the cost of books came way down. And the novel, in, sense, in a sense, was a monster uh, released upon the world in the 19th century to change it. And it did have an enormous effect uh, in, uh, quite frankly, uh, spreading uh, middle-class ideology. Uh, it was the, the novel was the great engine of middle class ideology, and so it is. In, in Mary Shelley had some sense of her book as monstrous, and that she was unleashing a force on the world, uh, and that's what's so striking. If Frankenstein had been written in the Middle Ages. God help us, uh, monks would have had to copy it on parchment. <laughs> and, you know, we would have had ten copies of it instead of the thousands that developed uh, in the 19th century. Uh, it's one of the great accomplishments of 19th century capitalism uh, that it made it possible to spread literacy and to spread uh, culture, spread books around the country. Again, by the end of the 19th century, uh, in fact, by the end of the 19th century, a new genre was created, railroad fiction. People had these long railroad rides, and they would buy a book when they got to the train station, uh, and it was cheap enough so they could read it and throw it away at the end of their journey. Uh, and so and Mary Shelley had some sense of being plugged uh, into this new system, and then, of course, you get the story on stage, and ultimately you get it on film. And then it really completely conquers the world. Uh, uh, the the Frankenstein monster is one of the most recognizable faces on earth. 
uh, I'm guessing there's nowhere you could go where people wouldn't recognize that face at this point. so the main we should talk the, about, talk about the movies now <laughs> more. Yeah, we can go from the novel to the representation in twentieth century terms in cinema, and uh, and then how cinema became ubiquitous through TV and reproduction. Yes, yes, uh-huh. and uh, you can see that at this point, at least, certainly it escapes from the design of Mary Shelley. Yes, what we have is this basic idea that with new power comes this terrifying danger that you could create monsters out of human beings or maybe transform human nature into something monstrous altogether through the unleashing of powers that you don't quite understand or control. That is still there and that seems to be the crucial fear and the way this relates to popular culture. And of course we can see that in our own times, our visions of the future in cinema, in our dawning digital age, are almost always massively pessimistic and dystopian. So we should relate to the early 1800s very easily. We too fear that science is going to create monsters, or that indeed we are the monsters. But but it, with the movies, you get an entirely new view of how this works that no longer has to do with either the French Revolution or the theories of Jean-Jacques Rousseau on education, which are massively on display in the novel, or the romantic sensibilities about love and friendship of the early 19th century, which again are detailed in, in length at length. Now we have something different with Universal Studios, James Whale, and uh, Jack Pierce's makeup for uh, Frankenstein, which finally gave a look that has stuck, as you pointed out, over the last 80 years, and indeed made Boris Karloff famous. Yes, Uh, and it is interesting that people have tried to relate this to different historical terms. Uh... 1931 is the year of Frankenstein. It's also the year of the first Dracula, and these are coming out of uh, Universal uh, Pictures, uh, headed by Carl Lemla. Now, Lemla had done horror movies with Lon Chaney in the 20s, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Phantom of the Opera. So there was a tradition of horror at uh, Universal Studios, but... uh, uh, they were now adopting it to the adapting it to the sound era, and what they did was quite remarkable. Uh, and it says that there were many efforts to relate the movies to uh, historical moments. I mean, it, it's difficult to avoid the fact that we're at the start of the Depression in 1931, and some of the horror in these films is a feeling of hopelessness and fatality uh, that people have lost control of their lives and are facing a catastrophe. Uh, A lot of people uh, attribute the films to the aftermath of World War I. Uh, World War I had spread horrors uh, around the European world in an unprecedented way. Uh, obviously the carnage and especially the sense of uh, machine violence now, Uh, the introduction of automatic weapons and poison gas and airplanes. I mean, uh, uh, people could just see for themselves that the power of science was being unleashed in destructive ways 
contrary to all the promises of the benefits of science. It is interesting, as you point out, that uh, Mary Shelley, in effect, invented science fiction. Frankenstein really has a good claim to being the first work of science fiction. And it is how interesting, how pessimistic about science, science fiction tends to be. Uh, there are very few genuine scientific utopias in science fiction, and the utopias often turn out to be horrible. And even H.G. Wells uh, effectively writes horror stories. Uh, and, and, for example, this island of Dr. Moreau is largely based on, on Frankenstein. <laughs> Frankenstein never gives up after his first experiment, but keeps on producing one monster after another. So people have pointed to World War I as shattering people's faith in science and technology. And I saw some interesting TV program on this. Uh, pointed out uh, the new introduction of essentially plastic surgery in the 1920s in an attempt to deal with the uh, immense disfiguring results of World War I and people needing uh, prosthetic devices, artificial limbs, needing to have their face uh, reconstructed. And uh, I've seen the argument that James Whale, who was an Englishman, uh, was very much affected by uh, what you could call the plague of disfiguring uh, that came uh, after World War II of people looking monstrous. Uh, and it is interesting to think of that as somehow feeding in to the inspiration of the horror movies. After all, so much of the horror movies of uh, the 30s are about people who just look horrific. Uh, there's the wonderful movie The Raven with Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi, and, and Karloff plays a character named Bateman whose, whose face has been hideously distorted, and he comes to Bela Lugosi uh, to fix my face, as Seth Boris keeps saying. Uh, uh, and so I think there's some plausibility to this connection that World War I had introduced a new kind of physical horror into people's imaginations that was captured. You know, the, the best horror movies are always the ones uh, who use a real fear as a basis for the, for the artificial or literary fear or artistic fear. You know, the, the exorcist... I think was so powerful because of the early scenes of the priest having to deal with his dying mother and so much of the uh, uh, power of that movie comes from the fact that a real fear of death and of aging is feeding into the uh, artificial fear generated by the story. And that's probably true of these universal films as well. Yeah, it's probably tied up to what happened with the Great War, as it was then called, which is on its 100th year anniversary. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's, there's a good case to be made that Europe committed suicide, that the whole age of progress, at the beginning of which Mary Shelley was writing, yeah. ended up with this horrifying bloodbath where every device of science turned out to be uh, monstrous and uh, a terrifying price was paid for all the power of empire, of scientific development, of commercial advancement, globalization, all of this stuff turned to butchery in the middle of Europe. Yeah, and by the way, that is the theme of, I think, the greatest of all the Universal films, and that's Edgar Ulmer's The Black Cat. 
which was the first film to unite Lugosi and Karloff. Uh, and uh, Lugosi plays the ex-commandment, command commandant of a World War One fort, Mamarush, uh, and uh, 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 Karloff plays. Uh, Excuse me. Karloff plays Yalmar Perzik, the ex-commander of a uh, uh, World War One fort, and uh, uh, Lugosi plays Vidas Vadagast, who returns to get revenge on Karloff, uh, who sold out the fort to the Russians, uh, uh, leading uh, uh, Lugosi's character to be carted off to uh, uh, prison uh, in the Soviet Union. Uh, anyway. Uh, it's all about the horrors of World War One, uh, and uh, Karloff plays the leader of a satanic cult. It's all a view of uh, uh, World War One uh, experiences being satanic. Uh, Ulmer is a fascinating figure in all of this because he was a German emigre. He was actually from the Austro-Hungarian uh, uh, Empire, but he had worked with the uh, F.W. Murnau, uh, the greatest of the German expressionist cinema makers. And that's one of the really interesting things about uh, the Universal films. I mean, they were obviously aimed at the uh, popular audience. They were quite successful financially. Uh, they were not taken seriously at the time. But in retrospect, we now see they made a genuine contribution to the cinematic art they proved to be the conduit of uh, German Expressionist uh, cinema into Hollywood. Uh, so that, for example, uh, uh, Frankenstein uh, was influenced by a, a German film called The Gollum, uh, originally made in 1915 and I think remade in 1920. Uh, it's influenced by uh, the famous cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and it's very much influenced by Fritz Lang's Metropolis uh, and by uh, uh, Mornell's Nosferatu. And, you know, movies, when they made the transition to sound, uh, it was a tremendous step backwards in terms of cinematic quality. Because suddenly, I mean, uh, the, the late silent filmmakers, especially Mornell, uh, had developed such a fluid camera style. Uh, the the camera moves so brilliantly in those films, or in Abel Gantz's Napoleon, uh, for example. Uh, uh, finally was a, oh, I'm forgetting the name of the film now, but he told the film not just without sound, but without titles. There were no words at all in the film. He told the whole story just with the movement of his camera. And the coming of the soundstage was a disaster uh, for films artistically in that suddenly you were bound by the rules of the soundstage. The camera couldn't move much because you've got to stay within the um, uh, distance for the microphones. Uh, and it's interesting that the... Uh, uh, the the first films that really liberated the camera again uh, were these horror films, and especially Frankenstein. It's got German expressionism written all over it. It's got the weird camera angles. It's got the use of light and shadow. And again, it's not as good as Murnau. It's not as good as Fritz Lang. Uh, I mean, Fritz Lang in M made the first great talkie, in, in my opinion, uh, where you still had that fluid camera of the uh, 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 
silent films, but he introduced, he made sound extremely functional in that film. Uh, but uh, these horror films, and actually Bride of Frankenstein, maybe more than and Frankenstein. Suddenly, the, these films were more visually interesting than the average film being made in Hollywood of that day. So the need to shock audiences, the need to convey the experience of horror, actually forced these filmmakers to liberate their cameras and be more creative, and that leads to the film noir style of the 40s. It actually leads to Citizen Kane. Uh, I mean, it's very odd to say that without Frankenstein, there'd be no Citizen Kane. But I think there's some truth to that, uh, that these films uh, showed once again what could be done with camera movement, and again with light and shadow and these ex- these extreme uh, viewpoints that, that had prevailed in German expressionism. And it's, it's strange to say this, but a, a lot of film historians uh, have made this argument that these, these, these horror films as pure cinema marked an advance. And it's another case of the, the, sort of the, the, this weird power of popular culture that it can lead in directions that are totally unexpected. Uh, again, to think that you start with Frankenstein and end with Citizen Kane. But that's how culture actually operates. It is unpredictable. Uh, it's, it's in principle unpredictable. And, and that's why people never predict uh, there was when when sound came along uh, in the tw- uh, late twenties. There were people who said this is the end of motion pictures, that this will ruin it, that for the sake of this dumb sound, we've now got to have a stationary uh, a camera. And a lot of the most advanced uh, film critics uh, in the twenties. Really objected to sound, and I forget who it is, but I found it in an English journal. Some critic who's responding to this and says, "You know, I just saw a sound picture, and I thought it was pretty good. It's by some guy named Alfred Hitchcock. I've, I, I swear this is true. I wish I had the reference, but saying I have no idea who this guy is, but I think he's going to be a great director, and that's the kind of people person I respect." It's very easy for someone now to say Alfred Hitchcock was a great director, but in 1928, that's an that's an observant person. Yeah, very much so, because you have to have an unusual respect for popular forms and their possibilities, and uh, it, it, there much of the history of early Hollywood still undersells the influence of German expressionism. Yes. On movie making and the uh, partly it is because in the 30s there was way more of an interior drama or comedy style to movie making but partly it's simply because people don't want to accept that something that is viewed that viewed itself as avant-garde art like Fritz Lang or Murnau or uh, uh, Robert Wiener or any of the other great expressionist movie makers could end up in the pictures uh, of, of Universal that were all about being popular, being made quickly and for uh, an audience that had no interest in high art or the, the politics of the avant-garde or any of that stuff. 
it seems incongruous and maybe to people who have uh, aesthetic prejudices even sacrilegious. Yes, but Ulmer's a great example, and if people have any doubts about this, see 1934, The Black Cat, starring Karloff and Lugosi. There were several films with the name Black Cat, so get the, the, the right one, but that has an amazing black mass in it that's straight out of German Expressionism, and again, he worked with Murnau, and of course, Murnau came to Hollywood, I believe he, he did Sunrise uh, in Hollywood, and many people s still say that's the most beautiful film uh, ever made. Uh, and if he hadn't died in a car crash, who knows what he would have gotten on um, to make in, in, in Hollywood. But you have so many examples of uh, 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 German filmmakers coming to Hollywood, including Fritz Lang. Of course, they weren't always treated well by Hollywood and not given... Uh, the respect they deserved and the freedom, uh, uh, the artistic freedom uh, they deserved. But still, they were there. Uh, they led to the development of film noir, for example. Uh, they really were very much uh, avant-garde forces. This includes Billy Wilder, for example, uh, Robert Siodmak, or however you pronounce his last name, uh, Otto Preminger, uh, so many of the people that actually were driving forces. In oh, uh, Eric von Stroheim. They were either Austrians or Germans. Uh, I mean, film really was the first international art. And we still think of it as peculiarly American because of the dominance of Hollywood. But around 1900 and, and well in, in, into the second decade, uh, the French were dominating film. Uh, the Lumiere brothers uh, were the first to figure out you project the thing on a screen and have a large audience. If it had been up to Edison, we'd all be staring into Nickelodeons uh, uh, still. And it's amazing how internet, the Japanese were making films in the first decade uh, of the 20th century. Uh, there's a the, the great story of the Chushingura clan, the, uh, which is the subject of several uh, great movies. Uh, you know, a film of that was made, uh, I think, around 1907 or 1908. And the Italians, uh, you had Kabiria, for example, some great films. Uh, and even the, the Danes, the Swedes were making films. So I, I think a film, I think, can take credit as the first truly international art. Uh, and it's one reason uh, it made such rapid advances. When you realize that in 1895 or so, the Lumiere brothers were filming a train pulling into a station, and that was the film, and by 1915, you're ready for birth of a nation. Uh, I think that's the most rapid advance in the development of a medium in the history of art. And I think one of the reasons is it was an international effort. And people literally from all around the world uh, uh, were working on this new medium. Uh, and again, since, I mean, Hara has, uh, and Edison made a Frankenstein film, his studios made a Frankenstein film in, I think, 1910. Uh, and it survives in fragments, uh, and it obviously is primitive by our standards, but it had its own special effects, and people were very, you know, we, we tend to think of the horror movie as an outlier uh, and not at the heart, but it, it, when you go through the great films, 
It's amazing how central the horror genre is when you think of Murnau's Nosferatu or uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Or, uh, it was there, uh, and then the importance of the Lon Chaney films in the 20s. Uh, and I think one reason is you're trying to portray extreme states and so you develop extreme camera angles. Uh, you need somehow to convey uh, these uh, horrific experiences, and that demands a kind of expressionism. Uh, so again, I, uh, I, I confess to having loved horror movies since being a kid. Part of it was uh, I was so frightened by them that I had to work to be able to sit through them uh, and prove that I could watch them. Uh, but uh, I would have terrible nightmares from these films. Uh, but anyway, uh, so I, I confess I have a sort of bias developed in childhood, but I, uh, I think they're much more central to the history of cinema uh, than people would like to give them credit for. And it's, again, worth thinking names like Murnau and Lang uh, to realize that... Uh, uh, this is something that has attracted uh, the greatest of directors. And, and you know, for variance, uh, you could throw in Hitchcock in a film like Psycho or Way the Birds. Uh, 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 it's something that movies do so well. Uh, uh, it, it's arguably, you know, uh, there's no horror novel, including Frankenstein, that can be anywhere near as frightening as a horror movie. Uh, obviously something about the motion picture uh, that is so good at conveying horror and so it has attracted a lot of talent uh, and uh, uh, we should be grateful to the, to the horror genre in the history of films. And also yes, just the, the actors, to th think of Karloff and Lugosi. Uh, I don't think either one of them ever got close to an Oscar. Uh, 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 but they were very good at what they did. Uh, and, and Karloff particularly, I mean, the, the other thing about the original Frankenstein is definitely uh, <coughs> a film that tries to develop sympathy for the monster. <coughs> I think one of the reasons it appeals to audiences, is it does reflect the universal human experience of feeling different, of not looking like other people. I mean, this is very strong in Mary Shelley's original novel as well, but it's something that the films have been able to do uh, even better. <coughs> uh, and in particular, there, there are real reasons why horror movies are an adolescent delight. It's the reason why teenagers go to these films is because it expresses <clears throat> one of the fundamental problems they experience, namely, uh, I look different. For, uh, do people like me? Do I look strange? <coughs> yeah, and that's, uh, that's, of course, prominent in the novel, and it ties up both to our modern societies with which are on the one hand super technological and on the other hand super democratic. Indeed, the rationale of, of uh, the creature who, in wanting a mate, is he wants somebody who is his equal. If there is something as deformed as him, it will not consider him a monster like the rest of mankind necessarily does. Now, that is a, a problem for the age of equality, for the dawning democracy, where 
people cannot bear the thought of being singled out. Absolutely. For Why am I different? Uh, in a way, you've got a democratic ideology that tells you not to be different. Tocqueville understood this very well, the pressure towards conformity in democratic society uh, uh, and that sense of being persecuted because you're different. Uh, again, that's very strong in Mary Shelley's novel, but the original Frankenstein develops that very powerfully. Uh, uh, you know, she, uh, Mary was reading Rousseau's Reveries the summer she wrote Frankenstein, and there's a passage in there where Rousseau talks about being, am I a monster? Uh, he says his house was stoned uh, in uh, Switzerland, and the people drove him out. It's just like the scene in the original Frankenstein movie of the mob of peasants going after the creature. Uh, it's really quite extraordinary to see the jump there from Rousseau to Frankenstein, but you can see it if you just look Look at a book like uh, like the Reveries uh, or Rousseau's uh, Emile, his educational book. Uh, uh, Emile, a young boy, is paired uh, with uh, a woman named Sophie, uh, and that Sophie became Safi in Mary Shelley's novel. The uh, Turkish woman that's being educated, and it's Rousseau's issue of education. I think he referred to that. Uh, that she could, and, and Frank, again, people forget that Frankenstein is set in Switzerland, it's set in Geneva. Uh, Mary and Percy were in Geneva at the time. Uh, the monster actually speaks French in the book, not English, although it's written yep. out as English. Uh, and so, the, the, again, makes the connection with the French uh, Revolution. Someone even when, you know, Frankenstein is written uh, in the beginning as a diary, and someone went through in what year was, would Thursday be the 19th of May or something like that and discovered it was 1789. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I read that somewhere, uh, that the, that's not, the novel Walton's uh, frame tale is set in 1789. So again, uh, you know, the, the Frankenstein movie, the 1931, is easy to dismiss uh, as a mere horror movie, but really it has great pathos. Uh, you have to give Karf a lot of credit for that. Uh, I believe he was in silent movies uh, and knew how to act with just his face. Uh, and he really, did, I mean, the, uh, the curious way in which he is a teenager, uh, he's awkward in his body movements, he doesn't fit into party into into the prom party he, he he would like to have a date but he gets really nervous for it uh when he he primps himself for meeting the de Lacey family and again that's conveyed even more so in bride of Fat frankenstein really one of the best sequels in movie history not quite the level of godfather 2 to godfather 1 but uh, so often sequels are just totally disappointing. Uh, and in making that film, they, they were really quite daring. They didn't just try to repeat part one. In many ways, it, it's a kind of postmodern uh, exercise in that it begins with a frame story in which uh, Mary Shelley's there, 
Percy Shelley's there, Byron, uh, and they're, t- and they're, uh, in effect, restaging the ghost story contest. So the, the film is very self-reflexive. In some ways, it's about the making uh, of Frankenstein uh, itself. And then there's a great element of humor in the film, this great character, Dr. Pretorius that they introduce again played brilliantly by Aaron Tessiger uh, uh, and there's a sort of playfulness to Bride of Frankenstein uh, it's almost campy uh, uh, and, and it is, the original people are playing with their own story so again it's something that happens in myths again you can see back in Greek tragedy that Euripides is coming late in the tradition and starts to play with the myths and make them actually sometimes seem laughable. Uh, uh, and certainly in the history of Frankenstein, you see that you ultimately get Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. And of course, above all, you get young Frankenstein. In a way, there's no great story that can't be parodied. Uh, and in some ways, it's the sign of the strength of a myth that it can lead to parody. Again, you can see that already uh, back uh, in Greek tragedy. And Aristophanes' comedies are often often take the form of parodies of Greek tragedy. And for that matter, this strange institution of the satyr play, uh, after the three tragedies, you'd have the satyr play. We only have one of them, Euripides the Cyclops, so it's hard to know much about the genre, but it does seem that the Greeks saw the idea that tragedy needs to be parodied and you can produce comedy uh, out of tragedy. And you already see that at work in, in Bride of Frankenstein, uh, which again, I, I, I feel is a, a terrific film. It was my favorite of the Frankenstein films uh, as a kid before I was a professional literary critic and knew how to say fancy things like postmodern parody about it. But I sensed, I must have sensed it back in those days. And you're right. It's uh, not. It, it doesn't take long for these new myths in their new cinematic face to to get their own ironic treatment, to get their own comic turn. And partly that's just because people, in getting used to them, can't be quite as afraid as they used to be, but they're still familiar. But partly it's because they also begin to see things that they hadn't seen before. And of course, the parody stretches not just from the story but all the way to the clunkiness of the movies as technology advances and tastes change there everything is up for grabs partly to show how the generations have changed and how tastes have changed with them but partly to show what comic poets see that tragic poets can't show you if they notice it the you know the great young frankenstein for which uh, gene wilder and mel brooks were nominated for an oscar uh, points out just how unerotic this romantic idealistic story is and makes a lot of fun of uh, about that precisely to point out that actually if these people could have somewhat more normal passions a lot of this could be solved yes and on a, the other hand that the you know the, the scientist is is a pretty insane guy even before yes. all the horror stuff happened yeah you know young frankenstein i think is mel brooks's best film and i'm a great admirer of mel brooks but as a filmmaker 
quite frankly, uh, he was weak in terms of dramatic structure. I mean, he was a good deal like W.C. Fields in the sense that Mel Brooks was a sketch comedian. That's how he developed writing sketches for the Sid Caesar show. His comic imagination, absolutely brilliant, uh, as brilliant as anyone I know of, yet it, it took place in 10-minute chunks. He was great at writing a sketch that had a beginning, a middle, and an end. Frankly, most of his movies are just a way of string together another a set of a set of sketches. The way uh, you know, film like Blazing Saddles, for example, uh, the plot is there just so we can do. Oh, I'll do the great campfire beans scene. Or, uh, uh, but in in it's a tribute to the Universal Pictures that Brooks was able to. Um, uh, in a way, uh, uh, occupy a genre. The film was there. The structure was there. Uh, uh, his decision to make it in black and white is very interesting in that sense that he would, uh, he knew he'd be working in a tradition that was handed. And for example, the camera work in, in, in uh, uh, Brooks's films is not great normally. Uh, it is interesting, high anxiety. If he's parroting a, a Hitchcock film, he has a style. Normally, he does not have his own style. You know, Chaplin and uh, Buster Keaton were great cinematic artists, uh, and they had a style. Uh, W.C. Fields did not, uh, and I feel the same way yeah. about Mel Brooks. But in Young Frankenstein, he, he was the benefactor of this universal look uh, and texture uh, and again, that's why I think it's his best film as a film. And I do, I mean, I, I have never laughed as hard in my life as the blind man scene. Uh, it's so hard to recapture seeing that for the first time. Uh, and so it is a brilliant film and unbelievably funny. Uh, uh, but of course, and it is interesting in the end how it tries to relate uh, the horror world to the ordinary middle class world with the creature reading the Wall Street Journal uh, and so on. And in a way, it does its parody because it reminds us of the ordinary world and how most of us live and why we don't live uh, at the peak of these roman romantic ideas of the Frankenstein story. So it's really wonderful in that sense. Uh, uh, yeah. And uh, it, it does show that this is the purpose of comedy. It mocks uh, exaltation, partly because it's unsustainable, but partly because it's unrealistic. Exactly, and yeah. It, uh, it adds, or, or rather it emphasizes, the things that are missing from the horror or tragic portrayal, and that does achieve a certain superiority. It gives a truer picture of, of human life. Yes, it's exactly what Aristophanes did vis-a-vis -vis Greek tragedy. Uh, let's take a sausage seller and let him act out the life of a great tyrant like Oedipus. And then you sort of see how ridiculous tyranny is <laughs> when, when it's, it's just 
an ordinary person with overinflated uh, desires uh, and urges. Uh, uh, and uh, you know he's exactly Frankenstein. He, uh, Doctor Frankenstein needs a kind of dressing down uh, in that film, uh, and he gets it. Uh, now, one film I want to talk about is very little known. Is something called Frankenstein: The True Story, uh, which came out as a made-for-TV movie, I think, 1974. Uh, and I, again, I saw it when I came out, and I was very impressed with it. It's actually written by Christopher Isherwood uh, and Don Bacardi, so it, it, it has a literary pedigree. Uh, it has an extraordinary cast. It has James Mason in it and uh, uh, Leonard Whiting and David McCallum and Jane Seymour and even sort of cameos by Ralph Richardson and John Gielgud. Uh, it's, it's very English. Uh, and it, it, it's a very interesting variant on the myth. And as I... Uh, uh, I really enjoyed it, and I think it it's worth being better known. Uh, it's very much the work of an esthete uh, sensibility. It's much more about beauty. Uh, in fact, the the twist in this film is that the creature is beautiful when created, extremely handsome, uh, played by Michael Sarazen, and the the twist in this film is that Frankenstein's creation decays over time, that something about the method of creation was faulty, uh, and so the, the, the skin and features literally decay. And so you begin in this film with a creature who is the toast of society, uh, who is celebrated in high social circles and then has to live with the fact of growing ugly. And he gets very bitter over that. Uh, and there's elements of Oscar Wilde in the fantasy of William Butler Yeats. Uh, Yeats was fascinated with severed heads uh, in some of his dramas. Uh, and this, this film turns very much uh, on, on severed heads getting tossed around. Don't want to spoil it for people. Uh, but uh, it, it's almost too artsy uh, as a film. But it, yes, it's very much uh, a state story and the rewriting for Victorian England of the of the Frankenstein myth. And it seems that uh, it, it combines two different things. One of them is, as you said, uh, a certain fear that the beautiful is perishable. Yes. The things we love most just don't last. They can't. And coming out in society as a young woman just as much as being a, a young talent as a creative man are both very much at the center of the story and they seem to reflect um, a certain awareness on the part of the artist that nothing he can do is immortal. Yes. Which is a very modern concern. And the opposite of the traditional view. You could, exactly. Poets used to be immortal, not anymore. <laughs> and, the, the, and the other thing has to do with social hypocrisy and the... Um, the artificial character of manners, yes, uh, the, very the James English, Mason played villain, exactly, 
is uh, trying to use this new power of creating life from death as a way of obtaining influence yes. in society to control people from behind the scenes. Yes. Uh, it, there's a germ of this again in Mary Shelley's novel, and it's a very interesting moment. Uh, uh, as we have the novel, uh, when Frankenstein has completed the creature and it comes uh, alive, it says something like, Beautiful, beautiful. I had thought the creature would be beautiful, but it was monstrous. Now, this is one case where, again, we have the manuscript. Uh, Mary wrote handsome. And in Percy's handwriting, we see that crossed out and the word beautiful. Substitute Percy, the romantic poet, the esthete, obsessed with beauty. He wrote a hymn to intellectual uh, beauty. Uh, and it's very interesting that he, in a way, aestheticized that moment. He took it from the realm of the mere handsome to the realm of the beautiful. And I think Mary actually, uh, in the whole moment, captured something about Percy, namely that uh, he always thought his works were going to be beautiful, but he was always disappointed with the concrete realization of them. It's very strange. Uh, we have poems and manuscript by him, which essentially are da-da, 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 da-da. He had thought of the rhythm already and didn't have the words uh, yet to write it down. And Percy was obsessed with the idea that even the poet could never uh, embody uh, the true beauty of his vision in in, in words, uh, so that in his uh, essay on poetry, a defense of poetry, uh, he writes something like, uh, 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 when composition begins, inspiration is already in decline. What a weird notion. You know, that's like saying... Shakespeare's King Lear is a pale version of what he originally thought. That at the inspiration moment of inspiration, King Lear was this fabulously wonderful thing. But alas, Shakespeare had to write it down, and then it was just a pale shadow of his original vision. This, by the way, is like Coleridge's story of his poem, Kubla Khan. And it says something about the Romantic poets that in some ways they didn't think that their own medium was adequate uh, to the brilliance of their imagination. And the issue word script captures some of that in that what Frankenstein creates now is beautiful, but decays and becomes uh, ugly. Again, that's why I think of that film as um, uh, uh, one of the most, if not the most, literate version uh, uh, of the story. And again, it relates a lot to some of Yeats's ideas uh, about uh, uh, his poems disappointing him. Circus Animals Desertion is a great example of that. Uh, uh, or a middle period poem he wrote called The Dolls, where he just, he felt that his his works were so inspired when they first came to them, but once written down, they disappointed them. By the way, this is in Nietzsche uh, at the very end of Beyond Good and Evil, where he talks about his wonderful thoughts and how pale they look on on the page. Uh, uh, it's an interesting aspect of the Frankenstein myth that I will readily confess is seldom discussed, uh, but I think it's raised by the this Frankenstein, the true story. 
yeah, I think you're right that this aspect of the preference for the infinite over the finite, for the potential over the actual, is de defines the romantics and I think explains partly why they were so in love with new science and new technology, looking for new powers of expression. And this, of course, happened to the modernists in the 20th century and will certainly happen with whatever new ways of storytelling are developed with digital technology. I guess it would be computer games now or yeah. augmented reality soon enough yeah. and it seems somehow to be inescapable that there's there's something of the tragic character of tragedy that transmits to our poets rather than sticking to the works they come up with yeah. there's and by the way this is the idea of vision yeah. and this is the idea of the sublime in burke and then in kant that the sublime, yes. sublime is the infinite uh that anything that goes beyond uh uh, ordinary sensuous reality that's only that puts us in touch with the transcendent that's the theme of a lot of Shelley's Percy Shelley's poetry including his famous poem Mont Blanc which is where the encounter between the creature and Victor Frankenstein takes place in Mary Shelley's novel it's amazing how all of this ties together uh, uh, yes. I mean, Frankenstein's absolutely... He's a very witty woman. Yeah. Uh, Frankenstein's absolutely rooted in the world of uh, European philosophy at the time, certainly romantic poetry, uh, and yet it, it, it enters completely into the realm of popular culture and then resurfaces in this Frankenstein, the true story, into some kind of uh, Oscar Wilde, uh, William Butler Yeats, late 19th century asceticism. Uh, it's so strange. I mean, to me, this is such... Uh, uh, an educational moment uh, that we're so uh, prone to try to separate pop culture and high culture as if there was a barrier, an impenetrable wall between them, uh, and yet it turns out uh, that wall is completely permeable, and ideas and motifs uh, travel back and forth from high culture to low culture, from low culture back to high culture, where people want to see an absolute dichotomy. You have all these gradations, Mary Shelley's novel, uh, James Wales, Frankenstein, this Frankenstein, the true story, all these other variants of horror movies. Uh, uh, they're not just uh, absolutely good or absolutely bad. Uh, there are all sorts of degrees. So, you know, uh, the 1931 Frankenstein is not a great movie, but it's a pretty good movie uh, and worth seeing and worth talking about and worth analyzing. And it helps to do so with a sense of this tradition and above all that the tradition moves up and down. It's a very common view that uh, that uh, uh, popular culture can only make something degenerate. And by the way, this is rooted uh, in the very common intellectual prejudice against anything that's commercial, the idea that commercial art can't be any good. But, you know, Frankenstein, the novel began in the world of commerce. Mary Shelley made a whopping 42 pounds off the book I recently <laughs> discovered, which was a lot more. You could live on 100 pounds in 1818, so that wasn't too bad. Uh, but uh, the average school teacher's salary in England at that time was, I think, 150 pounds. She, she, she made maybe a third of a year's income off it. Uh, 
and then all the product endorsements. That oh, if only, if she, only she'd gotten the royalties on that. Uh, but in any case, uh, she, uh, you know, it was it was a money making proposition publishing that novel, and it's just fascinating to see that uh, the commercial world of art what we might call market forces, they really are the engine of cultural development. Uh, and they take art in all sorts of directions, and we just we can't expect it always to be good directions. But on the other hand, we should never be prejudiced against commercial uh, culture and, and say, oh, this is a horror movie, it can't be any good. It's what people said about Frankenstein, the novel, back in the 19th century. No one in 1818 could have predicted what became of that story uh, or how well regarded it is uh, now. I always have, you know, I, I explain to my students, you know, in the 19th century, people voluntarily read novels. It was their form of entertainment, and and people yes. were telling them not to read the novels and to read uh, 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 Latin literature instead. And you know now I have to force you to read these novels, uh, but this was a form of entertainment uh, and a very powerful one, uh, and not just because it was a new medium, and but it actually is. This is a great engine of middle-class ideology in the 19th century. Uh, yes, uh, very much so. And by the way, Dickens picked up on Frankenstein uh, in Great Expectations. There's a semi-oblique reference to Frankenstein and uh, when Pip is being haunted by Magwitch, is compared to the student being pursued by the creature uh, he created. Uh, uh, and it's arguable that Great Expectations is a variant of the Frankenstein story because Magwitch is trying to create a gentleman out of Pip. Uh, uh -huh. uh, so it's just... Uh, uh, I, uh, I grew up watching horror movies at night and then reading Goethe's Faust. And those were two separate activities for me. And I had this really strong elitist sense that these were two very different things. Take me a long time in life uh, to realize that culture isn't an either-or situation, isn't based on absolute distinctions, but, but currents are flowing back and forth between what we call high culture and pop culture. Uh, and, you know, again, Frankenstein started out as pop culture. Shakespeare's plays started out as the popular culture of, of their day. Uh, the, the, uh, always remember an actress uh, who, who said, uh, if Shakespeare had to write for the commercial theater, he wouldn't have written the plays he did. And what a dumb statement that is. Uh, uh, because he did write for the commercial theater. And maybe that's why his plays were so good, uh, because he actually was in touch with his audience uh, and, 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 and writing with them in mind, and that en energized him. And I think the Frankenstein is a, um, the whole Frankenstein uh, myth, I think, is a great study in the variety and complexity of culture. Uh, I, I think it, it, it crystallizes how complex culture really is and where you never know where it's coming from. Uh, you know, you, you never know that an, 
uh, uh, an 18-year-old girl writing a story about a uh, horrific creation of a ugly being, that that's going to become uh, the new modern myth. Well, for that matter, you never know that the kid, guy from Stratford showing up in England and London out of nowhere is going to someday write King Lear. Uh, yes, say with people, uh, I bet that what the people on the street were talking about in King Lear was, you can't believe it. There's a scene where they, they actually rip a guy's eye out on stage. And, Damn it, if the next minute they don't rip his other eye out, you got to see this thing. It was a kind of yep. horror movie for its day. Uh, and it's Shakespeare's tribute that yep. uh, he lifted it's... it way above that. And I think Mary Shelley did that with these German ghost stories uh, she was reading and there's, uh, she was working within the Gothic novel tradition. You know, even there, the Gothic novel, uh, uh, something like Matthew Lewis's The Monk, these things are are, are real potboilers. That novel is semi-pornographic, but without The Monk, there's no Frankenstein. And ultimately, the Gothic novel culminates in Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights, one of the greatest mm -hmm. novels ever written, uh, but it grows out of this uh, really popular and, quite frankly, vulgar uh, tradition. And our, you know, one of the problems with modernism, I believe, is it tried to sever itself from popular culture and lost a lot of its uh, uh, energy and uh, appeal as a result. Although even there. T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland is incredibly cinematic. Uh, and yes, it, it works by cuts, uh, what we would call movie cuts. So, uh, again, I think the, <clears throat> the history of uh, 20th century high culture needs to be rewritten uh, and integrated with the history of popular culture. <clears throat> There's so much uh, cross-currents between the cinema uh, and what we think of as elite modernist poetry, for example. <laughs> With the snobbery, we could see that there is far more of an influence of modernism and avant-garde on popular entertainment because they have a lot in common. You could broadly say, actually, that tragedy and, in our case, horror are by nature popular genres and they're abhorrent to some extent to upper classes or elites. In our times, this is easier to deal with because for better and for worse, we see so many assumptions about what institutions are on top of society or who's in charge of the culture collapsing. Yes. Quite obviously, nobody is in charge of the culture anymore. And we're again experiencing this chaos at, at the dawn of a new medium. Nobody's in charge. Nobody knows quite what to do with it. But somebody will realize at some point that you can do great stuff by way of storytelling and perhaps another golden age of poetry will emerge out of this. Yeah, it's a, it's a good kind of chaos, I like to say. Culture is fundamentally chaotic. That's what's so hard for academics to deal with because they find the finished object and they, of course, can describe it perfectly in terms of artistic form and unity. But that's not how it came into being. Uh, it almost always came into being in, in a quite chaotic process, what we often call spontaneous order, uh, and it's all the, the uh, stronger for being chaotic. After all, the universe itself came out of chaos, uh, and this is all broadly related to what's called chaos theory. And we now understand that so many forms of order 
are not simply an example of ordering of a central force ordering things that in fact there are processes of uh, uh, transformation and feedback, uh, the same thing that produces evolution uh, in the animal world, by the way, the same way that economic markets uh, operate, uh, that uh, much of the great order uh, in our world is in fact emerging out of chaos. You see it astronomically uh, and so on. I, it, it's taken me a long time to uh, understand that the world of art and culture is not immune uh, to the chaotic patterns we see everywhere else in the universe. Uh, and again, if you, if, if you look at the progress of the Frankenstein myth, it looks so chaotic and irrational. Uh, and you have, I mean, it just looks so illogical and incoherent how you get from one point to another. But that's what makes it good, that no one is trying to control it. Uh, again, if you think back to 1818, uh, the British government uh, was not about to finance Mary Shelley because she'd written Frankenstein. Or, you know, uh, she didn't get a MacArthur Genius Grant. Uh, yep. It would have gone to some third-rate novel. Well, it wouldn't even gone to a novel. It would have gone to some third-rate epic poem. Uh, 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 yeah. That that looked like the Iliad or something. And people say, oh, yeah, that's the future. Uh, uh, and in fact, uh, the future of art is so unpredictable. That's why I always uh, raise doubts when people say that the whole artistic world uh, is going to hell. And Where are the great epic poets of yesteryear? Well, look at the great movies and the great television shows uh, that our, our world uh, is producing. And again, I think the Frankenstein story is a wonderful uh, example of that, uh, how cultural development uh, is not linear, it's not simple. It's not centralized. It is, in the deepest sense, chaotic. But out of that chaos emerges new forms of order because it is something that individuals are working at. Uh, I mean, I sometimes uh, get people confused that I'm, I'm, I'm saying that these developments are emerging out of social forces. And, uh, that's the Marxist approach. My approach is that everything happens uh, by and from individuals, but in chaotic patterns. Uh, and that's different. That's the way the marketplace uh, operates, that there's no one running the economy as a whole. It all results from voluntary transactions of millions of people, but it's still individual people. Uh, everyone making their bargains and making their deals. And it's the, the way in art, I mean, it's it's not, uh, you know, the movie Frankenstein reacting to the novel Frankenstein. It is ultimately James Whale reacting to Mary Shelley and so on down the line. And you can identify individuals in the process. It's never a corporate decision. 
Uh, <laughs> you see that particular, I mean, Carl Lemla, uh, the head of Universal, had so many problems with these horror movie uh, makers and tried to stop them. And, and uh, fortunately, he didn't get away with it. And, uh, <laughs> it was the, the Black Cat, the Ulmer film, has this fabulous score from classical music, and Lemla's son, Carl Lemla Jr., was in charge of the studio at that point, and, and tried to cut uh, Ulmer's uh, music budget, but he went ahead with it anyway, and it's now one of the strongest things about uh, uh, the film. So I do believe in individual artistic creation. I just increasingly don't think of it as happening in isolation. Uh, it's a process of interaction, and it's why we have a cultural history. It's why we have traditions. It's why we can speak of Frankenstein, a myth, passed down much the way, as we said, the Greek myths were. Yeah, um, to put this in Shelley's terms, it's probably true that poets are the unacknowledged legislators of mankind, but it should also be noted that the governed get to consent to government, and that imposes its own changes and limits on what happens and how it's passed down. Yes, that's a very good point. That's the conclusion of his defense of poetry. And when he says they're the unacknowledged legislators, that means they aren't legislators. Legislators stand there and impose rules on you. Uh, but unacknowledged legislators have to work more subtly than that. And that exactly. is, that it is essential that they stay unacknowledged. It's simply constitutive to the process. There's no changing that. Yeah, the, the defense of poetry is a great history of culture uh, and how it moves. And there's brilliant stuff on John Milton in it and on Dante uh, and how uh, uh, poets are really revolutionary thinkers, though they don't appear as such to their contemporaries. Uh, and that's a, that's a marvelous essay. I'm glad you brought it up. Well, sir, thank you for joining me on yet another conversation. I hope we have taken our audience on a ride, first of all, through the 200 years of uh, Frankenstein, but more broadly through the shocking changes in our culture and to the thought that media change, mythologies emerge, and talent will go to whatever it is that can persuade people to take serious things seriously in the way that the people are okay with being persuaded. Yeah, I think that's a very good summary. And I would just, you know, again, Frankenstein is often treated again as this mere horror story. It really is a tribute to the vitality of culture and the different media and to all the people with artistic talent uh, who essentially engage in an ongoing dialogue uh, and a form of cultural cooperation. Uh, and again, I take the really amazing history of this one story uh, as a, you know, a tribute to the resilience of the human spirit uh, and the artistic impulse. It really is, it's not where you would normally think to go to see, oh, what's really wonderful about our culture. But I think this Long, this 200-year history uh, of Frankenstein and uh, beginning with Mary Shelley really is an illustration uh, of how rich and complex uh, uh, culture is. Yes, sir. All that is left to do is to find another subject for our third conversation, and we should do that as soon as we can arrange it. 
Thank you so much for joining me, and I'm looking forward to your upcoming essay on Frankenstein. Okay, I'll let you know when it's out. All the best, sir. Same to you.